from Joshua chapter 19. I will, it says 51, but I'm actually going to read verses 49 through 51. Verse 49 through 51. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he, re- and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So each year, our congregation's nominating committee does its work to line up a slate of candidates to be elected as at the uh, annual congregational meeting. The committee itself is made up of elders and deacons and just regular people from the congregation. So in the coming weeks, you may be approached by a member of the committee, someone who asks you, hey, have you ever thought about being an elder? Have you ever thought about being a deacon? They will approach you because someone on the committee has suggested your name And the committee talked it over, and they thought, yeah, we think there might be a real calling there. The purpose of the nominating committee isn't to find warm bodies willing to be elected to office. The purpose of the nominating committee is to have their collective spiritual antennae out, sniffing the winds of the Holy Spirit as he moves through the congregation, through our lives, equipping and calling women and men to specific roles in the body of Christ. When it's done right, and I've seen it done right here at HVPC, when it's done right, it's the kind of experience that will raise the hairs on the back of your neck as you realize holy, eternal God is reaching his fingers into your time-bound, less-than-holy life, calling you to step up and to step out and to find your place in this mysterious, organic, spiritual creature that we call the church. And yes, the church is a creature in the theological sense of the term because it has been created by God, The church is different than a moose lodge or a volunteer fire company or a country club. Those organizations are created by people. They are voluntary human associations. They are valuable and honorable. They're useful, like-minded people banding together for some good purpose. That's great, but the church is different. The church is different 
from valuable, honorable human organizations because the creator of the church is Almighty God. And the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And the power of the church is the Holy Spirit. And the constitution of the church is the Holy Bible. And the members of the church are sinners who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And the officers of the church are redeemed sinners called by God to special service to other sinners. Now in a Presbyterian church, those officers are elected by the congregation... But there is no campaign. No one runs to become an elder. Generally, people run from becoming an elder. And that's the way it should be. If you look in the Old Testament, in the stories of the calling of the prophets, you'll notice a pattern repeated over and over again. God calls the prophet, and the prophet-elect says something like, You must be mistaken. I'm a man of unclean lips. You're probably looking for someone else. There is no place in a church for personal ambition. The church is not about acquiring accolades or amassing power or climbing some ladder of success. The church is all about giving rather than receiving. Every single person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and born again receives from the Holy Spirit one or more spiritual gifts. And these gifts are a little strange because these gifts are not for the individual who has the gift. The gift is actually for the church. Your spiritual gift is not for you to enjoy and exploit. Your spiritual gift is to give away to strengthen the church, which is a little strange. My birthday is coming up in November. Those of you who have been looking forward to this day, I love my birthday. This year it falls on Thanksgiving, so the whole country will be celebrating with me. On my birthday, people give me gifts. They give me paintings and rare books and medals from long-extinct South American kingdoms. Well, actually, they give me socks and ties and some bars of chocolates, but I love the gifts. They're for me. I get to use them. I enjoy them. But the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not like that at all. The gifts of the Holy Spirit we give away. I was writing these very words that I'm speaking now at 9 p.m. on Friday evening when I really rather would have been reading a novel. I have the gift of preaching. But that's not a gift for me to enjoy. It's actually a burden for me, a labor for me. Not that it's a bitter burden. It's a sweet burden, to be sure. But God gifted me not to serve myself, but to serve a particular body of believers that he's called me to. And so week by week, I give my gift away, this gift of the Spirit. Now, maybe you're thinking, gosh, that doesn't sound like a very good deal. Why would I want a gift that puts me under an obligation to give? What kind of favor is it from God if that favor puts me under an obligation to serve other people? Actually, as it turns out, that's the greatest gift any person can receive. We find our greatest contentment, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest pleasure when we are serving others. 
when our focus is not on ourselves, but when we lose ourselves in serving other people. I hope you've had this experience. You probably have. When you're cooking for guests, when you're reading to your child, when you're visiting someone who's homebound, you've probably had these kinds of experiences. Winter is just around the corner, and with winter comes snow, and with snow will come the occasional car that gets stuck and needs to be pushed to get moving again. Maybe you've had the experience of pushing some stranger's car. Heavy, hard pushing with the wheels spinning. But what a thrill it is when those tires grab the pavement and off the car goes. I've seen people run down the street for a chance to be one of the pushers behind a snow-stuck car. There's something about that moment, a shared elation as you wave at the car as it drives away. Why does that make us feel so wonderful? Well, because we've been made in the image of God. And God is relational. God is generous. God is helpful. And when we flex our muscles and grunt and push to help someone else, we're truly living. We're living the way God designed us to live, giving ourselves away, showering the gifts that we've received on the people who are around us. Stingy people are the saddest people. They're so afraid that they won't have enough for themselves, and so they miss out on the thrill of giving themselves away. And so when God calls us to a specific or a special service within the body of Christ, He's giving us an opportunity for selfless joy, for maximal joy, for real joy. If someone from the nominating committee approaches you and says, you know, we've talked about you, and we think that God might be calling you to a special role in this congregation, your first reaction might be, oh, I think you've got the wrong guy. That's a healthy reaction. That doesn't mean that you have false humility. But let me say this. Sometimes we don't know what our gifts are. Sometimes other people see us more clearly than we see ourselves. I had an interesting conversation just a couple of weeks ago at Valley Christian School. I was talking to a mother of one of our graduates and she was talking about her daughter and saying that she wants each of her children, she's got like five or seven children, she wants each of her children to have some activity outside of school that they really love and that they're committed to. And she's worried that her daughter, who was one of my favorite students last year, hasn't really latched on to anything. One of her children is involved in sports, another is serious about dance, but this child is content to spend all of her time on the couch reading. What should I do with her? The mother asks me. And I brought this student to mind for about a half of a Holy Spirit minute, and I said, maybe she's ready to write her first novel. And the light went on for this mother. Because as I said it, she saw it. 
The daughter is a beautiful writer. She has a rich interior life. She's been saturated with good reading for the past decade. Why not try her hand at writing a novel of her own? Sometimes we don't see ourselves as clearly as other people see us, particularly if those other people love us and are bound to us by the bonds of Christian fellowship. The nominating committee, when it's doing its job the way it's supposed to, will be surveying this congregation with eyes of love, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, listening for God's call in our lives. When they're doing their job the way they're supposed to, and I've seen it happen here at HVPC, they're not looking to fill slots with warm bodies. They're thinking instead about where you will experience the greatest joy because you've been given the opportunity to make use of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you. You know, I didn't become a pastor because I woke up one morning and said, you know, I think I want to be a pastor. I became a pastor because different people at different points in my life said to me, Dan, you might be called to be a pastor. Now, in the case of pastors, because there's so much at stake, the process of discernment and and preparing is long, it's careful, seminary, of course, but also three years of close, covenanted, intentional relationships with people in the larger church, with the session, with the presbytery, who are actively mm, engaging with me, praying with me, asking God, is this what God is really calling me to? It's not something that we do on our own. Discerning God's will for our lives is not private. There are no solo Christians. Every Christian is bound or should be bound in a covenantal bond with other Christians. As we work together, as we have this pilgrimage together, as we work out our salvation and our calling together. Within the church, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for us. They're for the body, for the people around us, which means that our calling is not for us. It's a calling to serve others in a way that God intends. And when we do that, we discover our purpose and our satisfaction and our deepest joy. The nominating committee exists to help people in this congregation discern God's call on their lives. Now, just because someone from the committee speaks with you, that doesn't automatically mean that you'll find yourself a deacon or an elder next year. But it does begin a conversation. A conversation animated by love for you, concern for you, a conversation filled with the Holy Spirit. Just one final thought before we turn our attention to Joshua. In the New Testament, the word for calling is klesis. It's a common word in the scriptures. The Greek-English lexicon defines it this way, an invitation to experience, to an experience of special privilege 
and responsibility, an invitation to an experience of special privilege and responsibility. One of the basic words for the church is ecclesia, which is based on this same word. The church is a group of individuals who have been called, called out of darkness and into light. So everyone who is a Christian has a calling. What's yours? Here's what Paul says about our calling. This is in Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, you came this morning to hear about Joshua, not to hear about calling, so I don't want to disappoint you. So let's take a look at our text from Joshua chapter 18 and chapter 19. Beginning way back in chapter 14, we have the account of the distribution of the territory of the land of Canaan among the several tribes of Israel. That story begins in chapter 14 with a special allotment to Caleb, and it ends in chapter 19 with a special allotment to Joshua. Caleb and Joshua, the two young spies of Israel who 45 years ago said, let's go up and occupy the land. And now they form the bookends of this account of the distribution of that land. And between those two end points, we have the distribution of large swaths of territories to individual tribes. In chapters 18 and 19, we find the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh. There still are seven tribes who have not yet received their allotments. And so Joshua sends out three surveyors from each of the seven tribes, 21 men altogether, and they travel the length and the breadth of the territory and they write up a book describing the lands that still have yet to be allocated. And based on those descriptions, Joshua divides the remaining territory into seven parcels and distributes them by lot. The first lot falls to Benjamin, the second to Simeon, the third to Zebulun, the fourth to Issachar, the fifth to Asher, the sixth to Naphtali, and the seventh to Dan. Why is my favorite tribe last? This is not fair. Well, actually, the final allotment goes to Joshua. After everyone else has been taken care of, Joshua, the leader of the people, claims by the command of the Lord, Timnah, Sarah, a ruined city that he has to rebuild in order to live. And by the end of chapter 19, we hear, these are the inheritances that Eliezer, the prince, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the father's houses, of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. 
and we all can breathe a sigh of relief. But before we get comfortable, let's spend just a few minutes reflecting on the physical setting of this final distribution of the land. Our reading this morning that Joan read for us, beginning in chapter 1 of chapter 18, or verse 1 of chapter 18, it reads this way. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land laid subdued before them. The war is over. The unthinkable has been accomplished. A people who were not a people, a people who were just a bunch of slaves with no identity, no leader, no land, no worship, a people who were not a people in the course of one generation are taken out of Egypt, they're delivered into a land of their own, with leaders of their own, under a law of their own, bearing the stamp of a unique identity that was all their own in the course of one generation. Along the way, God uses this bunch of nobodies to humble Pharaoh, who is the most powerful human on earth at that time. He uses this bunch of nobodies to thrash and to punish a whole bunch of nations whose wickedness rose like a stench before holy God. Nations whose wickedness had stooped to the unthinkable low point of killing babies as an act of worship. Think about how satanic that is. That the destruction of a beautiful child, the bearer of the image of God, would be the cause of celebration and public worship. But that was what was happening in Canaan. And so God destroyed those people, using nobodies as his own holy scourge. And now the land lays before them subdued. They're at a place called Shiloh. The place means, the, the name means place of peace. It's in Ephraim, in the heart of the future kingdom of Israel. And there the whole congregation of the children of Israel meet at the tent of meeting, the portable tabernacle where God is present and where God is worshiped. And there the distribution of the land takes place. The final verse of our reading this morning gives the scene. These are the inheritances that Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. This is the greatest moment in the civic life of the nation of Israel thus far. The whole land is being divided up in a way that will affect countless generations of Israelites. It's the kind of decision that we might make in the hallowed halls of Congress or in the Supreme Court. It's an announcement that we might make from the Rose Garden of the White House. But notice where this monumental decision is made and announced at the entrance of the tent of meeting, at the door of the church. In our culture, we've gotten to the point where everything is a political issue. What you eat, 
what you drive, what sports you enjoy, where you live, what you wear, what music you listen to, where you worship. Everything has a political connotation these days. But why? Is it because politics really has become our religion and our faith? Do we really deep down believe that politicians are our saviors and that their platforms are our gospel? Is that what's happened to us? Paul Tillich, a liberal 20th century Protestant theologian, defined faith as, quote, the state of being ultimately concerned. And he defined God as the individual's ultimate concern. Tillich writes, the ultimate concern is that which demands complete surrender of the person who faithfully accepts the ultimate. Has politics become our ultimate concern? Is the state and the power of the state our God? If we bring our greatest concern, our biggest decision to the halls of power rather than to the house of prayer, then yes, politics is our God. No matter what we say with our mouths, our actions prove the condition of our heart. If we bring our greatest concerns and our biggest decisions to the halls of power rather than to the house of prayer, then politics is our God. The people of Israel bring their greatest concern, the biggest decision in their national life to the house of prayer, to the church. Now, political power is present in this scene. Joshua is the political and military leader, but notice that Joshua goes to the tent of meeting. Joshua goes to the worship space that's supervised by Eleazar the priest rather than Eleazar going to Joshua's battle tent. That's an important distinction. So let's just spend a few minutes thinking about ourselves. Where do we run with our deepest and our highest and our largest concerns? Is it to the church? Or is it to some secular or technical power? On the biblical view of human affairs, there is a place for civic power for government, absolutely. But that place is subordinate to Christ because Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Christ's reign outlasts 10,000 presidents and prime ministers. On the biblical view of human affairs, there is a place for technical power, for science and medicine and psychiatry, but that place is subordinate to Christ because he is the maker of heaven and earth. Because his mind has invented our bodies and shaped our souls. Because his power holds our bodies and our souls together. As we close this morning, I think we'll take just a few minutes in the quiet to allow ourselves to ask this question. Where am I taking my greatest concerns in life? The things that I'm most concerned about. 
Where do I go with those? At whose gates do I make the greatest announcements in my life? Let us pray. Almighty God, somewhere in our minds we do believe that you are over all, above all, in all. Somewhere in our minds we identify you as our ultimate concern. And yet we confess that so often... We are tied up with lesser things. We're committed to lower order things. We are obsessed with smaller things. And we confess that our involvement with those things might tip over into idolatry. So we pray your forgiveness. We pray that our ultimate concern would be things which are ultimate, not things which are passing away. That the things that would stir our hearts in the greatest degree would be those things which are eternal and not those things which are just temporary. We pray that our faith would not be in other people. We pray that our trust would not be in our own power. We pray that you would give us the grace to know the freedom that comes with worshiping you and bowing before you and trusting in you. Father God, we are all a flutter and anxious and cranked up when we look to be our own saviors when we look to other people to be our saviors. And we are at peace and we move with grace and beauty when we know you as our savior. And so we pray this morning in this house of worship, this tent of meeting, we pray that as we meet you here this day, that we would know you as Father, as God, as Creator, as Lawgiver, as Redeemer, as Savior. And we pray that that would be enough 
that we would rest content in you, that you would be our all in all. And I pray that as we center ourselves upon you, that we would find the other parts of our lives properly ordered, that they would find their place, things which are beautiful and good, but things which are subordinate to you. Jesus, you are the King of kings and you are our Lord. We pray this morning that you would give us the grace to be able to worship you because we can't do it alone, because our hearts are factories of idols. Give us the joy of knowing you as our ultimate concern. Amen. As Dan said in the beginning of his sermon, when God calls us to special service within the body of Christ, he is giving us an opportunity for selfless, real joy. I found my spiritual gift when I joined this praise band. I sang in my teenage years, but for about 15 years after that, I wasn't singing at all. I wasn't very happy.